You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Morgan Jerkins in conversation with Terry Henderson. My name is Carla Dupre, the Executive Director of City Lit Project, a literary nonprofit located in Baltimore, Maryland. We're excited to join you this evening to present this program with our longtime partner, Enoch Pratt Free Library. This month, City Lit Project introduces a new series called The Invisible Invincible Asian American, Telling Our Stories, that brings exciting new and contemporary writers in AAPI literature front and center. This series includes two mixed genre panels, one on craft and the other on publishing, and will feature authors like Lisa Coy, Anjali Jetty, Paisley Rickdahl, Jennifer Chang, Hannah Bay, and James Han Matson, among many others. Be sure to check out our website. The event takes place on May 18th and May 19th, and throughout the month, we will shine a spotlight on Baltimore's AAPI writers through a reading and interview series on our City Lit YouTube channel. The events are free, but registration is required on our website. Visit citylitproject.org. And now for tonight. This evening's event is brought to you by two organizations who remain enthusiastic and bringing the best in literature to readers and writers in this region. From historical fiction to mysteries, from poetry to spoken word, and so much more. But tonight, we get to dive into magical realism by a most celebrated author who debuts her fictional work. Before we begin tonight's program, we recognize and acknowledge we are currently on the traditional lands of the Piscataway people who have stewarded throughout generations. To make this a more meaningful practice, if you live in this region, we respectfully ask you to consider learning more about the Piscataway Konoi tribe, the people where the rivers blend. Every community owes it, its existence and vitality to generations from around the world who contributed their energy to making the history that led to this moment. Some were brought here against their will. Some were drawn to leave their distant homes in hope of a better life. And some have lived on this land for generations. Join us in honoring and acknowledging the original inhabitants of the land we are on, as well as the enslaved people who built the country and structures that make up our modern North American landscape. We pay respect to the elders, past and present. As we spend the next hour with our featured guest artist and our moderator, our hearts go out to India, who continues to grapple with one of the most dire situations one can imagine with over 20 million coronavirus cases with a rate of infections increasing. We are ever mindful too of the ongoing challenges black and brown people face in this country. It is indeed times like these where we turn to literature for respite from the world around us. On a lighter note, these next two months, I'm afraid some of us in Maryland await the arrival of a billion guests with fear and trepidation. Yes, for those of you who don't know, the upcoming Brood X is about to make Maryland a cicada palooza. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> I wish a wee bit of magic could get some of us through this. Despite their arrival, we remain thankful to have partners like the Enoch Pratt Free Library. Please welcome my literary cohort in crime, Tracy Diamond, the Adult Service Coordinator. Thank you, Carla. Uh, it's so good to be back on screen with you and eventually in person. Um, but I mean, 
for anyone that is looking for things to do um, while they were waiting out the cicadas coming and joining us um, and also continuing to social distance through COVID-19, um, you can check out more of what happened at the City Lit Festival back in March on City Lit's YouTube, on the Pratt Library's Facebook page. It was a really incredible festival that we were honored to be a part of. So definitely check those pages out. We'll be adding some more videos too. Um, so welcome friends from near and far. As Carla said, I'm Tracy Diamond, the Adult Services Coordinator at the Enoch Pratt Free Library. And thank you for joining us for a special Writers Live with Morgan Jerkins tonight. We hope you'll also honor Asian American Pacific Islander Month with us with an online poetry discussion on Saturday, May 8th, reading from all regions, um, and then a Hackerman Foundation Best and Next event with B.D. Wong on May 19th. Um, and before introductions, I'll go over some virtual logistics. If you're watching in Zoom, please click the Q&A button on your screen to post questions. And if you're watching on Facebook, please post in the comments. A survey will also be posted near the end of the program. Your feedback really helps us serve you. Today, we're thrilled to have Morgan Jerkins in conversation with Terry Henderson. And so as we are listening tonight, we hope that you'll support your local bookstore, the Ivy Bookshop, and order your copy of Call Baby directly from them. I'll post a link in the chat to purpose called purchase Call Baby from the Ivy Bookshop's website. All right. Morgan Jerkins is the author of Wandering in Strange Lands and the New York Times bestseller, This Will Be My Undoing, and a senior culture editor at ESPN's The Undefeated. Jerkins is a visiting professor at Columbia University and a Forbes 30 Under 30 leader in media. And her short form work has been featured in The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Rolling Stone, Elle, Esquire, and The Guardian, among many other outlets. She is based in Harlem. Call Baby is about so much. Black woman's magic, fertility issues, grief, family, loss, race relations, gentrification, Black motherhood and mortality. I could go on, but I will let tonight's conversation really give you a taste of the book, of the novel, and you should get your copy from the Ivy, which again, I'll post the link. Her conversation partner, Terry Henderson, is a curator, co-director of Wildly, and writer. She formerly held a curatorial internship at Ghost Gallery in Seattle, Washington. During that time, she also helped launch the social media campaign for the nonprofit access to justice platform, Pop-Up Justice. She also previously served as the Art Law Clinic Director for Maryland Volunteer Lawyers for the Arts. Her work as co-director of Wildly addresses, the shrinking, sh addresses shrinking the gap between the spaces that contemporary artists of color inhabit and the resources of the power structures of the art world through the curation and artistic production of events. Henderson recently founded the Black Collages Arts Incubator, and she is currently a staff writer for Be More Art, as well as the Connect and Collect Gallery Coordinator. So please give a warm virtual welcome to Morgan Jerkins and Terry Henderson as we begin with a reading from Morgan. 
Thank you, everyone. Uh, thank you so much uh, to the Enoch Pratt Free Library, um, Tracy, uh, Terry, and Carla for inviting me on this very nice evening. Um, I'm going to start with reading a section from Call Baby. So, you know, if you will oblige me for a few moments, I'll start with that. I'll just turn up my volume a little bit. There were cracks on all four corners of Mama's bedroom and they were hungry. Black, jagged, and deep, they resembled outstretched hands whose claws leaned toward the center, anticipating when they could devour her whole. They were Mama's biggest nuisance. Over the years, she'd squandered thousands to get them painted over, but there was no polymer in the world that could overpower a vengeful spirit. She knew their brownstone was askew ever since Iris had been born. Cups stained in the cupboard minutes after they had been washed. Subtle sounds like fingernails scraping against windows or sharp winds on the inside persisted. But ever since Iris's premonition about that woman, Layla, the outside presences became more apparent. The holes in the ceiling grew larger. The wallpaper chipped and crusted no matter how many times it was patched over. And the aroma in certain rooms was stale and dead even if perfumed oil in glass decanters was used to diffuse the smell. She didn't want to believe it. The house had been lived in for decades. Wear and tear was natural. But Mama was getting older. She'd had to move from her master bedroom down to the office on the first floor because her legs were no match for the stairs in her old age. Though the car nevertheless protected her body, it did not protect the mind in the same way. She had always been perceptive paranoid even, which is why she took Iris's words to heart. But now she wondered if taking heed to that premonition about Layla's unborn child was enough. The Melanson family were accustomed to precarious living situations. Before migrating, they lived along the Cane River in Natchitoches, Louisiana. Each family owned a home on Air's property from the river to the back swamp. The ranch in which Mama resided was on land between the river and an artificial levee, the living room itself right along the central waterway, a risk for whenever there were high tides and hurricanes. Cochon Delay characterized many weekends, night long carrying on and feasting on roast suckling pig before Sunday mass at St. Augustine. When car bearers lived peacefully, they distilled oil from their camphor trees and sold them as a medicine and perfume as a side hustle to everyone from the neighbors to the priests. Ever since Hala was born, Mama had been reminiscing about simpler days spent raising chickens and hogs or watching the sun touch the valley's horizon through the sand hills. She felt secure. Her family was secure, their legacy intact. Hala regenerated call more quickly than anyone Mama had ever seen. Mama fantasized without worry. She would sink deep into her mattress and recall the smell of the sycamore azalea. How as a child, unlike her relatives, she was endowed with an apprehension about her sense of place while living on a seemingly congenial pocket of space where the land and water met. Moving to Harlem had brought its challenges. The camellia red beans, white lily flower, Creole seasoning, and Louisiana hot sauce did not cook so richly here. In the summertime, the scent of fried chicken wafted through the air. Then in the colder months, the air smelled of nothing but rain. 
They substituted their gardens for flower pots, lawns for stoops, camphor oil for their bodies. But at least they owned their brownstone outright. She and her husband, Alexander, had pulled their resources together, what she made selling her call and what he made as a blacksmith to move up north and start anew. Of course, the city lights had been too much temptation for him. Just like a man, Mama had often told herself when she caught herself missing him. He had no interest in being a blacksmith anymore or hearing about how Mama was progressing with the call-bearing business. Whatever earnings they cultivated, he squandered on drinking and gambling until finally Mama caught him laid up with a cabaret singer. She kicked him and his belongings out on Frederick Douglass Boulevard, and he left without so much as a request for reconciliation, let alone an apology. The only thing she could remember him by was a small wrinkled photo of him that she kept in her desk and had never thought to remove after all these years. Since Alexander left her with two small children, Mama poured everything she could back into their home, devoting painstaking effort to making sure every corner was dusted and every surface polished. The home, like her business and her children, was her world. And she was hell-bent on preserving her world, bounded within these four walls. Thank you so much. That's actually um, one of the, my favorite passages in the book. And I'm, I, I thought the audience would appreciate your voice reading your words than mine. So Thank you. <laughs> um, I, let's, get, let's get into it. Um, okay. Uh, so I call baby. I read it in a day. I was so excited. Wow. I inhaled it. Um, it felt like a home going and a thrill ride. So Morgan, I know this is your third book, your first novel. So in your own words, can you just briefly tell us what your first novel call baby is about? Yeah, so Paul Baby, well, first I want to start off by talking about the, the folklore around call baby. Um, in African American traditions, it's said that when a child is born inside of the amniotic sac, um, that child has a gift. Mm -hmm. And the gift could be the gift of healing and protection and or the gift of second sight, meaning that they could see in the past or they could see in the future or both. Mm -hmm. And so what I decided to do was create a story about uh, a family of women who are call bearers and they sell parts of their call um, to the highest bidder. That's their familial practice. And this puts them at odds with their community because it's based in Harlem and it's rapidly gentrifying. And most of their uh, patrons, if you will, are white people who are not in the community. And what further puts them at odds, and this is how the story starts, is there is a woman named Layla who suffers from infertility at the beginning and she gets pregnant and she seeks their help and they deny uh, her because of Iris's premonition that I uh, read from this particular excerpt. And the community's up in arms about it. And one person from the community, I, uh, Mar uh, excuse me, Layla's niece, Amara, mm -hmm. um, vows to become an assistant DA in order to go after them mm -hmm. um, from a prosecutor's standpoint. But this gets complicated because Amar has a secret of her own. Mm -hmm. She gave birth to a child um, and gave her up. And that child actually is a call bearer herself, hollow. And she winds up with this family. So the story is in two parts and it follows the trajectories mm -hmm. of 
not only these two women, Hollow and her biological mother, but also their respective families in this community that is dealing with survival. Thank you. Thanks. So I know that in your acknowledgments for the book or the dedications, um, you mentioned that one of your mentors said that the story should be taken from a short story into a novel. Mm -hmm. So how did that happen? How did that, where did it start and how did we get here with, with this book? Right. So I actually started writing Call Baby um, the same year that I moved to New York. I am from uh, a very quaint a uh, modest town in South Jersey. And when I came to Harlem, like my senses ran amok because there were so many sights and sounds and smells and textures and people of the African diaspora, diaspora especially. And so I was definitely thinking about my place within this metropolis, um, the effects of gentrification, obviously, but also just my vulnerability as a black woman in city spaces. Mm -hmm. And so I was approaching to the penultimate semester of my MFA program and I wanted to try to new form I had been writing non excuse me fiction particularly novels since I was in high school and so I thought you know because I'm getting to the end of my time I, I want to try a new form so I wrote this very contained 20-25 page short story um, about a girl who gives up a call bearing child um, and abandons her and she gets she gets taken in by somebody else um, and I brought it to class. I was the first one to be workshopped, which I really did not like, but I was able to get it over with. And when I had a one-on-one -on -one with my mentor, he told me, he said, I think this deserves to be a novel. And because that was already, um, how do I say, my natural rhythm to write long, mm -hmm. I decided to take him up on it. That's amazing. That's, that's wonderful. Um, so can we just talk, can you tell us a little bit about some of the other themes that are within the book? I know we kind of talked, touched on um, magical realism. So what are just some other themes that you, that inspired you and that you explored uh, throughout the text? Right. Uh, I would say uh, Black motherhood, mm -hmm. gentrification, mm -hmm. survival, uh, capitalism, and I think the push and pull of community mm -hmm. and what that entails. So I'm originally from Texas and I appreciated all of the allusions to the South, um, especially specifically New Orleans and Natchitoches, which are both places that I've spent time in. Wow. And it, yeah. So when I heard Natchitoches, I was like, oh, yes, I know where that is. Uh, so a familiar thread in this book is the migration of Black folks from the South to the North for better lives. And again, like this book is a book that focuses on women and Black women and all of their complexity, mm -hmm. their strength, endurance, and wonder. And I love how the Melanson was a family of women, aside from Landon, who um, who ran and were the household, period. Like, that's who th this fortress was of Black women. Mm -hmm. um, and although they used their bodies for profit, it was with agency and autonomy. And I was so impressed and understood completely the echo of Amon's allegiance to their brownstone, which they, quote unquote, owned outright. I love seeing that repeated throughout the text. Uh, and there's this moment when ha Hollow, after they um, go to the town hall meeting, when she's like declaring and touching her body and being like her flesh is the only thing that's entirely her own um and her and i and then just thinking about how her independence is something that is admired by josephine um so my question is and you kind of talked about this a little a little bit earlier can we like how did you get to the significance of primary buyers of the cult being white men and white women right well because if we think about 
the ruling class mm -hmm. in the United States, um, those who collectively own the wealth, mm -hmm. it's white people. Yeah. And, and when we think about Harlem, for example, and mm -hmm. my mother tells me this all the time because she's a real estate agent, you know, back in the late nineties, you could probably get a brownstone for 50, 60,000. Oh. Now they're worth four or five million. Mm -hmm. And so with the rising in rent prices and with mm -hmm. the heightened police surveillance, it's usually due to white well-to-do presences. Mm -hmm. And so the reason why I wanted to bring up that delineation mm -hmm. uh, and, and an overt delineation is because usually when someone who is black, who has that much of a privilege to own a brownstone mm -hmm. outright and to maintain their stake in a community where almost everyone around them is being displaced, it's usually, you know, that's not to say that every like black people don't have wealth, but collectively speaking, systemically, mm -hmm. uh, we don't hold that wealth. Mm -hmm. and so that's why I wanted to bring that up is that even though these black women feel like they're autonomous, mm -hmm because they have this gift and because they're the ones who set the prices and handle the all the logistics of these mm -hmm. transactions they still are black women mm -hmm. and they are still because they are on this settler colonial land they are still vulnerable to these systems that everybody else is vulnerable to even mm -hmm. if they don't have the same experiences so that's why i wanted to 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 bring that up so mm -hmm. overtly mm -hmm. no it's 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 very clever um, so yeah, thank you. Um, so this this next question is about this beautiful cover because it was made by someone who was born in the South. Um, Romare Bearden is originally from North Carolina and the collage work on the cover, Mama's Knee is the cover art. And so when I, when I, even before, I think even before I was invited to do this talk, I remember seeing the book cover like across my timelines and um, I was just struck by how beautiful and powerful the piece is. So why did you choose this piece specifically? So I didn't choose it. Um, oh. the, the, my publisher's art team okay. was said, okay, we thought of this and I, I loved it. Mm -hmm. I loved the, the colors. Mm -hmm. um, I love still that, you know, it's a mother and her child, but also they have a little bit of an abstraction. Mm -hmm going on but you know when I researched more about Ramirez Builder because I'll be honest I, I, I wasn't as knowledgeable about his work I found some magical connections to mm -hmm. him like him uh my father was born in North Carolina and his mother was born in Atlantic City and my mother was born in Atlantic City oh wow so it definitely were these the sort of uh inexplicable full mm -hmm. circle moments even from the artistic direction mm -hmm. very serendipitous that's so neat uh, so this is this is going to sound like a random question, but I promise it's going somewhere. Okay. Do you have any attorneys in your family? Uh, I do, but I'm not close to them. Okay. Uh, so that brings me to the next um, question. I think this is also part of the reason I was invited to do this talk a little bit. Was this threat of black black attorneys or black people studying law within the book? Um, so there's a line early on in Call Baby, and I'll paraphrase it. It's just. I think it's Diane saying, everyone is becoming a doctor or a lawyer. Make sure you do it for the right reason, not just for money. Oh, yeah, that was Layla. Well, yeah, thank you. Uh, so I, I really appreciated Amara's reasons for going through law school and becoming a prosecutor. Like you said, like this quest for justice and, and maybe even revenge a little bit. Um, yeah. And the, the thirst um, and retribution 
So I went to law school because I felt it was what I needed to do to be successful. And I felt that that, like Amara's character was my favorite in the book. Um, so can you kind of, can, how did you develop her character and did she mirror any of the women in your own life? Um, so what I will say is, thank you for that. Um, Amara, the inspiration for Amara was actually uh, the way that I actually sharpened her character rather, I'll say that, mm -hmm. uh, was because of Kamala Harris's oh. ascendancy. And the reason being is because when uh, Kamala Harris announced that she was running <clears throat> for president, there was so much conversation mm -hmm. about, on the one hand, optics-wise, oh, this is fabulous, a Black mm -hmm. and South Asian woman running for president. On the other hand, you had those who were a little bit more left-leaning, mm -hmm who were like, well, she was also a prosecutor in California. Yes. And what about the black and brown people that, you know, suffered, for lack mm -hmm. of a better term, under her tenure there? Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted to deal with that complexity because mm -hmm. in the beginning, Amara, she wanted, I mean, it's a kind of implied that she wanted to be a lawyer because mm -hmm. it's a traditional path and you're successful and you can make a lot of money doing it. But mm -hmm. her aim gets sharpened mm -hmm. i can't use the word again she gets sharpened because of what happened to her aunt mm -hmm. now she has a purpose and layla it's funny because i put a foreshadow in there layla says to her after she says the line that you quoted make sure you have a purpose for doing what mm -hmm. you're doing not realizing that the purpose is going to be you oh wow right so the purpose of why she decides to have this this limitless mm -hmm. ambition to mm -hmm. become the DA mm -hmm. is because of her aunt, because of this van, vendetta. Mm -hmm. but, in, but, but understanding that when you are working in the carceral system mm -hmm. and you have this goal to get ahead and being the police union's darling and the people and, and rich political donors darling, yeah. there are people who are casualties of that. Yes. And the casualties are those who look like her, who are lesser privileged than her, which is why I start the second half of the book with this antidote of this 16-year-old Black girl in Harlem. Mm -hmm. Because it goes to show that in Amara's case, ambition comes with a cost. Mm -hmm. And when you are working as an assistant DA, it definitely comes with a cost. Yeah. Given what we know about the rates of incarceration when it comes to Black girls and Black women as opposed to those of other races. Mm -hmm. um, in terms of, you know, learning about the legalities and the ways in which you can make crime stick, mm -hmm. I actually uh, spoke to a, a Black woman who went to Yale Law, similar mm -hmm. to a, a Mara's character, and was asking her, hey, well, does this sound too far-fetched? Could this be something? So that wasn't me. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, it was me, but I, I actually did do my research with those who have worked, for example, in the Manhattan DA's office mm -hmm. who could give me some pointers on how to make it seem realistic. Yeah. Yeah, like there is this line um, where it's like a DA not having any, any connection to the police is like the Archangel Michael not having connected to Jesus. And I, I mean, like... Yeah, it, it's like... It, there's, 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 <laughs> yes. I mean, I don't like, is it naivete? Yeah. Um, is it, is it, is it delusions of grandeur? Yeah. Like, it's like, and we, and, and that's why I wanted, like, 
I wanted people to understand the position that she's in, which is why I had the church scene yes. where yes. people are talking about her. On the one hand, they feel like she she'd understand because she's from the community. Other people are like, no, she is not our community because look at who she aligns herself with. Yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, definitely. Um, so this next question is a little bit more like a, an illusion or a reference that I thought of being in Baltimore. Uh, so again, based in Baltimore, and when I'm thinking about the businessman who comes to visit the Melisons and sought to research the call and mass produce the call and how he kind of like slid up in there and was like, I'm going to make you an offer you can't refuse. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. I was like, oh no, immediately. Um, and, and I automatically thought about the story of Henrietta Lacks. And so if anybody who does not know, um, Henrietta Lacks was a black woman who lived in Baltimore, Maryland. Her cancer cells were used for cancer research and were mass produced and immortalized by Johns Hopkins Hospital. And like, we're not even gonna get into that. So they reproduced, they were reproduced indefinitely and her family was not compensated for the commodification of her body. Mm -hmm. um, and I, if I remember correctly, they didn't even know that the cells were being like used in, in this way and in this manner. Um, yes, someone said stolen. Yes, that part. So was this parallel intentional or was it another just kind of like serendipitous or is it just like this is just what happens to black women and yeah oh that was intentional yeah okay. that was absolutely intentional mm -hmm. um how do i even start yeah. um so i was uh, hesitant to write about a family that sells pretty much parts of their bodies yeah. um because i was a little bit worried about it being too far-fetched mm -hmm. but then I thought about the history of this country with regards to black women's bodies we would not have modern gynecology mm -hmm. if it weren't for uh Dr. Marion Sims experimenting on enslaved black women without their consent mm -hmm. to this day we don't even know their names their descendants could be walking among us right now mm -hmm. you know if it, it, I think I think about Henrietta Lacks mm -hmm. and how so many technological advances in science would not have been possible without her body. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, for example, recently, you know, with the move bombing remains, those, mm -hmm. those, were, those were black girls yes. and they were used in anthropology courses and, and people didn't understand, well, what happened to them? You know what I mean? Like, you know, how do we make amends for that? And so, and I think about it even in, in others and uh, on the other side of the spectrum too, when, you know, when it comes to the political realm, black women save us, black women save us, mm -hmm. Georgia turning blue because of black women's mm -hmm. efforts. The amount of black women who voted for Hillary Clinton in the 2016 presidential election. And so I said to myself, given what I know about how much this country relies mm -hmm. on the utility of black women's bodies, is it that far-fetched to create a story where black women are literally selling themselves to protect other people's lives? And then the answer was obviously no, which is why I wrote the book. But definitely Henrietta Lacks was an inspiration. The three, the enslaved Black women that were experimented on um, to create modern gynecology were an inspiration for sure. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, so we talked a little bit about gentrification um, and there are act, like actively pockets of gentrification happening in Baltimore City. And mm -hmm. I've seen Baltimore change. I've been here for five years and I've just mm -hmm. seen it change dramatically mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in that short amount of time. Um, so I, Call Baby begins in 1998. Is that the correct year? Yes. Okay, so it's in 1998 and it 
in the, and throughout the book, there are these there are these instances and allusions to the gentrification of this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. um, so there are several moments when one of the characters like notices that the rent is getting ready to rise. Like I think there's like, it's like basically like I don't have to get ready now, but I have to brace myself. Mm -hmm. um, and then years later, there's a moment when they're um, in the town hall meeting, and there's a white resident who mentions that uh, there's like this this problem problem happening in the neighborhood. Yep. Yeah. we should call the police and then everyone is just right yes. uh and so like the, and then there's also this is what a thing that i saw that was very important that you did was when mama mentions that the police had not shown up until this time um um when they come for for a particular incident i don't want to get too much away but that was the first, so like i'm like things are obviously changing in this neighborhood um so Later on, there's a moment when Hallow is going to the town hall meeting and she stops at Starbucks and she's and then she's like passing like, I guess it was some kind of like artisanal bakery place and all these other things. And she's just noticing that even though she wasn't allowed to leave as much, that the block is becoming unrecognizable. So again, like this, this um, allegory threat of gentrification and capitalism in Harlem is one that so many Black people are facing it. Um, so why was it important, and I don't want this to seem overly simplistic, but why was it important for you to include this in this particular book? Well, the gentrification of Harlem? Yes. Uh, because I felt like I, I, there's no way that I could set it in Harlem and it's spanning 20 years and mm -hmm. to not show the, the transformation of mm -hmm. this neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You know, I moved in ha to Harlem in uh, the summer of 2015. Mm -hmm. And I remember within a year or two, stuff was changing. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? And sometimes in a matter of a week, like I remember a similar, a, 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 an instance where I won't go, I mean, I, I lived on a certain corner. I lived on 116th and uh, Malcolm X, which is like a main like the subway is right there um, and it's great. Um, and I remember like a lot of men, black men would hang out on the streets um, and, and, and just congregate. And I remember one night I woke up and I, there was a really boisterous argument happening and it was really loud. It was the type of thing where it, it could have, they could have awakened like many city blocks. Um, the police showed up and I knew they showed up because um, I lived on the first floor and my apartment faced the street and I could look at the wall and I could see the red and blue mm -hmm. reflected lights reflected on the wall. And literally, I feel like no, no later than a week, um, I saw that the vestibule to get into my building, it was, it was double locked. So you couldn't even open the door to the vestibule anymore. Um, and there was more police surveillance uh, around my block and of course the black men that uh, that congregated they disappeared mm -hmm. they stopped congregating there um I, and so i i felt like if i did not speak about gentrification mm -hmm. and and in harlem especially because i'm not originally from here mm -hmm. then i then i would have done a disservice mm -hmm. because when you can't go to come to a place like this and not feel uh connected to it you know what I'm saying? You can't come to a place like this and not feel indebted. Mm -hmm. And I felt like I had to, and from, I think from a thematic standpoint, I felt like I had to write about gentrification because it heightens the stakes. If it, if, if, if you know, people weren't leaving and landmarks weren't changing and rent prices weren't rising, mm -hmm. then the stakes would have been significantly lower. 
mm-hmm. right, in this book, besides just the brownstone falling apart. Because yeah. it could be like, oh, I just leave then. Yeah. You know what I mean? Go some, go to another brownstone. Mm-hmm. How do you go to another brownstone when, you know, you have to pay a whole lot more and the people mm-hmm. you're going to be around are not your people? Mm-hmm. So that's it. So that's why I had to have that in there as well. Thank you. I think we have um, time for like a, a couple of more uh, of these questions. And mm-hmm. I'm just curious, how did you learn about the call or about this, this element of folklore? Um, I learned about it uh, initially from my mother because mm-hmm. my aunt is actually incredibly perceptive. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? She's not uh, educated in a traditional sense. But she reads people like nobody else in my family. And I remember I made a comment to my mom about it. Mm-hmm. And she said offhand, you know, it's been said that she was born with a veil. And oh, then that wow. she just moved on. So that's always stuck with me. Oh, wow. That's deep. I mean, I, I studied religion in undergrad. And I remember reading about Second Sight. And, so, and it wasn't something that I heard about until now again. So I, I was uh, fascinated. It was it was. It's a good book. It's a really good book, everybody. Buy the book. It's really good. Um, and I think I just have, um, I was thinking a lot about the Melanson's rejection of helping Layla. And I was kind of like, okay, like, had this premonition not happened, would they have helped her? And then I was, I had to question that because I found out later in the book that there were like, I think it was in the town hall when somebody was like, well, I had lupus and they didn't help me. And, and I'm just kind of, can you kind of talk about that? Like, why? Was it because it was it about the pricing or was it just about like what was that about? Yeah, it could have been about the pricing. Yeah. It could have been for a lot of different things because we don't know the time period of when the person acts. True. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But the thing about what 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 distinguishes the Melanson's is that they're really not of the community. Like That's they've true. been there long. It's like it's a paradox, right? They've mm-hmm. been there longer than a lot of people, mm-hmm. but they're really not of the community because they already separate themselves. They already think of themselves as special. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And yeah, they are special in the sense they have a call, but they don't see themselves on the same plane mm-hmm. as other Black Harlemites. Yeah, and so you can we can ask the same question like if you've ever Black women, you know what I mean, or if you've ever been in a situation where you wanted help from someone who was black as well yes. and they didn't help you. And you can mm-hmm. try to understand why they did, why they didn't help me. But it's almost like, it's almost too debilitating to think about mm-hmm. because you think about where, where their alliances. And if you mm-hmm. see in the book, most of their alliances, at least, you know, financially are with white people. So they're yeah. going to kind of keep leaning on white people because they know that their money is less likely to run out. And yep. they have other networks that they can tap into. Like for Landon, Landon works on Wall Street, Yes. right? Who are most of the people that work on Wall Street? White people. So that's who <laughs> yeah. their main, their main, I hate to say it, like their main runner. He's yeah. not going around the court. He's going down to, you know, he's going down towards in Trebekah. He's going mm-hmm. around towards that area. Mm-hmm. Well, we have some questions from the audience. Let me pull those up. Um, so the first one that we have says, how has your experience with writing and publishing fiction differed from writing and publishing nonfiction? And have you noticed any overlap? I feel like with writing and publishing, well, I'll say for my book, Wandering in Strange Lands, it was different because it was so research heavy. Like I had to combine interviews um, and think about video footage and fact checking and secondary sources um, and all those sorts of things. And I felt like there was a lot more getting it to the right place and with fiction because I did the world building there mm-hmm. um in terms of the overlap a lot of you know what 
some of the elements of that I learned from my travels, um, especially for Wanda Strange Lands, they filtered in to the book. So this whole, like my mom, the matriarch, she has a trauma of being displaced. And mm-hmm. when I was traveling to do Morning in Strange Lands, um, I saw that trauma play out from people who fled during the Great Migration. Um, and also Natchitoches, I did field work in Natchitoches. Mm-hmm. So that's why I put that in there as well. Um, so, and also for my first book, this will be my doing, I centered black girls and women, similarly to how I um, centered them in call baby. So I definitely see all of this like my my universe. Like mm-hmm. any any work that I put out, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, is going to be in dialogue with previous works. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, so the next question says, Morgan, could you share how your writing practice has been impacted during the pandemic, and what had it, what has it been like to release a book during this pandemic? Um, so my writing pra- practice has uh, during the pandemic has been kind of similar to how it was. Um, pre-pandemic in that I am an early riser so I write Mm -hmm. um, in you know in the mornings on the early mornings because I'm that's when I'm the most alert so I usually like that but I actually released two books during the pandemic Mm -hmm. Wandering was released last August Mm -hmm. and Call Baby was released you know this you know this past April so how's it been how's it been it's been a ride um and I'll say that you know for better for worse because I love being around people to discuss books. I love getting the energy from a crowd and, you know, going out for drinks or for dinner with loved ones Mm -hmm. um, afterwards. And um, I wasn't able to do that. So it was definitely like trying to figure out ways to just have communion with people and to get energy other ways, like through the chats and Zooms and things of that nature. Um, But I will say like, in spite of these adjustments, I have been really thankful for for the receptions that I've received in spite of the distancing. So it has been uh, difficult in some spaces, but it's also been very, very heartwarming. The, the next question says, how did you create or determine the many facets of the call and what its medicinal properties were? And how did you determine how it would operate and what it was capable of doing? Copy editor, because in the beginning, you know, I had these properties and then I started adding in other properties. And then my editor was like, wait a minute, you established this here. Is this going to change? Or maybe we should streamline these properties. So one of the things I wanted to add was that like, call gives you good luck. And I was like, nah, nah, like it kind of makes you think of a rabbit's foot. So it's like, yeah. I don't know if that's probably helpful. Let's, let's stick to the protection of other people and like the second sight and all that. Um, and so that's where what I got that. But I also did research like mm-hmm. in, in certain traditions, not even just black traditions, um, sailors would wear a call around their neck so that they would not drown at sea. That was actually a thing. Uh, so there was this tradition of call selling. Mm-hmm. Um, people would come to markets with them um, and, and, and like these little vials or whatever and, and the sailors would buy them. So that was actually a thing. So I did look into secondary sources to see like the folklore around the call. Is there any other instances where I can find stuff about maybe like it's, um, it's uh, capital, it's commodity mm-hmm. potential. And I found it. Thank you. Uh, so I like this next question. It's what are you reading right now? 
so right now I'm reading, uh, so I, I'm a professor at Columbia, so I'm reading my, my, one of my students' nonfiction thesis. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> um, so, and, and the reason, like, my reading life has definitely suffered mm -hmm. um, during the pandemic because I used to read on uh, trains and I used to read on buses because I love the movement, mm -hmm. but it's hard to do that. You can't replicate that when you're on the couch. So I definitely have not read a lot of books that I thought that I was going to read. But the last great book that I read, um, uh, well, actually one of the books I'm reading is called The Transition Baby by Tori Peters. I'm still making my way through it, but I really like it. Um, so the next question says, I was curious about the complicated relationships between the women. Who was the most difficult character for you to write and why? And who was your favorite character to create? I think my most difficult character was Amara. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason why is because um, we spend time with her, but I also feel like she's still mysterious in a sense, mm -hmm. because a lot of time has gone by. Mm -hmm. And we don't know about our experiences at Yale. We don't know about all the, whatever happened or even get into the uh, assistant DA's office. And I still wanted to leave that part of her interiority closed mm -hmm. and to show people like she really still went through a lot, but I felt like I had to, I don't know if I say compensate, but to just still uh, show that she is caught between two worlds. Mm -hmm. And that was hard to do because while I was revising the book, the George Floyd protests mm -hmm. were happening. I could hear the protests right outside of my right outside my, my apartment. Mm -hmm. And so I I I, I lean very left, right? And so mm -hmm. that was very hard for me to write this person of like an assistant DA who was suffering on the back end um, of all the people that she's taken to jail, but not saying anything publicly. Because of me, at that time, I was just like, I don't care. You, mm -hmm. you, made, you made your bed lie in it. Yeah. But I understand life is a lot messier than that. Mm -hmm. So that was also what was helpful for me to wake up in the morning and return to her before I heard the chants and all that outside, before I logged in on Twitter and saw other protests um, and other instances of uh, police brutality happening across the country so that I can really give her character uh, the expanse that it deserved. Mm -hmm. uh, the more, no, my favorite character to write, that was a hard one. Because a part of me, I think ha uh, Helena mm -hmm. uh, is uh, one, of, one of the favorite characters to write because Helena suffers an accident where she cannot regenerate call. And in that family, functionally, she's useless. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to think about like, what would it mean if you are considered to be the successor to a very lucrative business and now you are, you're, you, you, you're rendered useless, right? And, but what, the, what does that mean freedom? Because parts of your body cannot be found around people's necks anymore. What type of opportunity can that lead to both personally and professionally? So that was very, I thought it was very nice for me. It was very nice for me to write how, uh, Helena, excuse me, Helena, especially when she was an adult. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember um, initially disliking Helena's character just because of the way that she bullied um, Hallow. And right. I loved like after like the book, how the relationship that they had and how they had this kind of tenderness for each other. Mm -hmm. I thought that was really special and just reminded me of my own family. So yeah. Um, I'm trying to see if there's any more questions. 
Um, so you've mentioned your previous research impacting each book to come. Um, could you talk about how you consider truth in your writing? Um, well, that's, that's a, wow, that's a big one. How do I consider truth in my writing? Um, like, I, I don't know if I understand, like, I, is it in terms of like, um, how, how reality affects, how reality influences what I'm writing about? um yes so so I would say like I mean it's everything like I mean besides the call everything about there's so much that's truthful like when I talk about uh Saint Augustine um Mm -hmm. that's an actual church that I went to um when I speak about um for example uh St. Philip's Church where Layla and them are parishioners. I was baptized in St. Philip's Church. Uh, when I speak about Amy Ruth's, um, uh, where uh Amara has a business meeting, a very mm-hmm. faithful business meeting, I lived literally two doors down from Amy Roots. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I'm thinking about, for example, Abyssinian. Baptist Church, one of the most famous black churches probably in the world. I've, I've, I, you know, I've attended a virtual church service there. Um, I'm thinking about Marcus Garvey Park. I've seen that. I live near Central Park. Like all of these different landmarks are, you know, embody the truth. You know what I'm saying? Um, and and because I wanted this book to be partially an historical document in a sense, because I don't know how many of the landmarks I listed there are going to be here. Yeah. And I wanted to honor the Harlem the way I remembered it as I live here because mm-hmm. it's bound to change. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you. I think that that's all the questions that we have. Um, oh, sorry. Um, what writers inform your work? Um, usually we have a lot of writers in our audience. So what nuggets of your writing practice would you like to share uh, that you live by in your fiction and in your nonfiction work? Right. So in terms of what writers inform our work, um, Toni Morrison, mm-hmm. James Baldwin, Jasmine Ward, um, Dostoevsky. Mm-hmm. Um, I love Japanese literature. So um, Yukio Mishima. Um, uh, it's a long one. Sorry for the interpreter. Um, his name is Runosuke Akutagawa. Um, and so I, I love these writers. Um, in terms of nuggets from our writing practice, do not have to write every day. Um, and that's something that I learned with Call Baby. It's like there may be some days where I write every single day, and then I take a whole week off, or I take three to four days off because my body needs the rest. Um, so rest is as important as the productivity rest fuels the productivity and it fuels your creativity so do not bypass rest Um, another thing that I would say in terms of writing practice is to know your stride Um, if you are a writer who is the most um, imaginative in the late hours then write in the late hours you don't have to write all day long I probably if uninterrupted I probably write at most three and a half hours Mm -hmm. I don't write all day and so know your stride so that's why for me I only write in the early mornings because I know after I have my lunch I'm ready for a nap that's (laughs) not where my energy is in writing so that's that's a few nuggets that I can share thank you I mean that's helpful to me even like I sometimes I feel bad when I don't write, so no, you're I appreciate fine. I appreciate you saying it doesn't have to be every day. No, no. Uh, I think this person is saying, "What are you currently working on 
um, either fiction or nonfiction. Fiction. And I think it's because reality is too overwhelming yeah. right now. It's like, I want to escape. I actually started writing as a child as a way of escaping mm -hmm. um, stressful situations. I created mm -hmm. these characters in these worlds with whom I could seek solace and mm -hmm. community. And I'm doing the same thing. It's a full circle moment. It's an incredibly stressful situation, even though now it's global rather mm -hmm. than uh, singular. Mm -hmm. And so now I, I, I do fiction right now. Thank you. Mm -hmm. I think that might be it. Anyone with any more questions? Thank you, Morgan. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. That was fabulous. <laughs> I felt like we got to know you as a writer, as a um, you know, lover of literature, as you know. I don't know, just so many facets of you, Morgan. But thank, thank you. you for that. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much, Morgan, Terry, Alyssa from the Hearing and Speech Agency, and Carla. It's always fantastic to work with City Lit. Yeah, Morgan, it was, I mean, exactly what Carla said, getting to hear everything that goes into your writing and to have you share that with us was just fantastic. So I hope you thank felt you. that energy that you miss from in person and we'll have to have you in Baltimore in person at yes. some point coming up we're excited yes. you're working on fiction so we'll have you for that next book thank you yeah I'd love to come <laughs> thank and thank you, you for so just the story um you. you don't hear about calls and mm -hmm. the minute I read that you were writing about it, it's like yes <laughs> absolutely you know a little bit of a folklore mm -hmm. The idea that you know there's this magical thing that can happen and you know could work as as, as something that's positive as well as something that's negative mm -hmm. so you brought a whole different spin to it i thought thank you thank you so much thank you so much for this evening and thank you terry for your wonderful questions thank you i i, I was so nervous it's nice to meet you virtually in this room okay. and, I, and i really did inhale this book everybody thank you. it's so good thank you thank you so much y'all all right have a great night everyone Hi, everybody. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye, Morgan. Bye. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.